That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering you, me, and we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halevi, and I produce and host this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the disaster happened there. And I know that with 104 nuclear reactors all over the U.S., plus radioactive sites and reactors around the world, whether you can hear those sirens or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Today is Tuesday, January 24, 2012, day 323 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011, and here is the latest nuclear news. In the United States, the biggest news comes out of Vermont, where a federal judge has blocked the state of Vermont from forcing the closure of the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant when its license expires in March. The Vermont Senate voted to deny the company a new operating license in 2010, but the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission extended the plant's license in the days following last year's Fukushima nuclear disaster. On Thursday, U.S. District Judge J. Garvin Murtha overruled Vermont's efforts, saying only federal authorities can regulate nuclear safety. The Vermont Yankee plant is one of the oldest in the country and has had a series of radioactive tritium leaks. Vermont officials are expected to appeal the ruling. The fight will almost certainly now go to the U.S. Supreme Court, according to longtime activist Harvey Wasserman, who edits NuclearFree.org. He says that at stake is not only the future of atomic power, but the legitimacy of all deals signed between corporations and the public. In the interim, Vermont Yankee has been found to be leaking radioactive tritium into the ground and the nearby Connecticut River. Under oath in public testimony, company representatives have denied that the pipes that leaked even existed. One of Yankee's cooling towers has collapsed, and just so that you are aware of this, Vermont Yankee is the exact same model of nuclear reactor as malfunctioned in Fukushima. It is a GE Mark I reactor. So we will keep you up to date on that story on Nuclear Hot Seat because there are many core issues involved in it. In an earlier story from Vermont Yankee, uh, Entergy Nuclear, which runs the nuclear power plant, has proposed for more infrequent inspections of the nuclear power plant uh, because its first three rounds of inspections over five years revealed no serious cracks in uh, the steam dryer. Now, Entergy asked the NRC to change its license requirement for inspections um, it, because in 2007, 2008, and again 2010, the company did not identify any quote-unquote unacceptable indications of cracking. Now, an indication, that's a very specific word here, is anything that does not appear to be original construction and that requires further evaluation or investigation, things like welds or joints. Entergy has asked the NRC to approve the inspection requirement change from every 18 months to once every 10 years. Now, the steam dryer, which is located above the reactor, removes moisture from steam as it heads towards the turbines. In other nuclear reactors with a similar design as Vermont Yankee, the steam dryer has cracked and in at least one case has broken after it boosted power production, which increases vibration on the giant steel plate. Entergy received its power boost of 20% in 2006. 
Last week, the New England Coalition, an anti-nuclear group that fought against Entergy's 20% power boost because of the steam dryer problems, said Entergy's position to change the license should be dismissed out of hand by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Moving over to Japan, in the last 48 hours, there have been two earthquakes near Fukushima. There was a 4.5 earthquake today and yesterday a 4.3. In the wake of those earthquakes, all monitoring stations in and around Greater Tokyo have shown a significant spike in radiation at the highest levels mentioned since last April. They are double the average rate. This story is still unfolding. We'll give you more news next week on the podcast. Now, again, in Japan, TEPCO... Uh, has said that the reason that the radiation has increased on site at, uh, at Fukushima is because of human activities. The radiation readings, to be fair, uh, had begun to decline in November and December and dropped to 60 million becquerels per hour, which is still considerable. But the company says the levels in January have been up slightly to 70 million becquerels per hour. And in giving the explanation as to why, TEPCO said that radioactive materials around the number two reactor, the surrounding of which is still highly contaminated, were stirred up by a number of workers going in and out of the building. Now, if they just kept their shoes off or maybe wiped them better on the mat, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Not. In attempting to find out how much radiation has been leaking in the current state of the nuclear reactors at Fukushima, TEPCO drilled a hole into the side of reactor number two and inserted an endoscopic camera to take pictures and to look around to see what they could discover. The camera that was used can resist up to 1,000 sieverts, not microsieverts, but sieverts of radiation. If you put the camera at too radioactive a place for too long, the camera gets broken. And that's exactly what happened. The endoscope that was inserted into reactor number two basically fried. It stopped operating. And TEPCO is resisting buying a more protected camera because that would cost 1 million yen, which is the equivalent of about $1,100,000. They're spending at least a quarter of a trillion dollars on the situation in Japan to clean it up, but they don't have a million one to find out exactly how bad it is. Also bad news coming from that report was that uh, TEPCO could not spot any signs of the fuel. They said, unfortunately. Yeah, I would say that's unfortunate. The probe also failed to find the water surface, which indicates that the water sits at a lower than expected level inside the primary containment vessel and questions the accuracy of the current water monitors. In other words, they don't really know what's going on inside the reactor, but it seems that the radiation is much higher than they knew, and uh, they don't, you know, you, here, fuel, where are you, fuel? <laughs> Come here, fuel, where have you gone to? One other piece of numbnuts information out of Japan, uh, they really are starting to look like the three stooges there on a governmental level. It was announced that uh, the government's nuclear disaster task force did not keep any record of its meetings after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant accident. It made important decisions, including the designation of evacuation areas, basic policies on decontamination, and restrictions on the shipment of agricultural produce and the Public Records Management Act requires minutes of important meetings to be kept. 
So the government may achieve accountability, and the people may verify the process by which decisions are made. However, the person in charge of the government's nuclear and industrial safety agency, which acts as the secretariat of the task force, told NHK Broadcasting in Japan that he was, quote-unquote, too busy to write the minutes. So uh, the government is now saying that they are going to recreate the meetings from those uh, from those very important early meetings. They have apologized and said that they'll compile notes soon based on individual notes taken by meeting attendees. Uh, no word on the level of accuracy that is expected from those reports. And finally, before we go to our interview, also in Japan, uh, at this point, 50 of the 54 nuclear reactors in Japan are currently offline because of, uh, first of all, the Fukushima accident and also because of yearly stoppage for maintenance, and none of the reactors have been restarted. Now word comes that Japan has planned a 40-year cap on nuclear power plants that could be extended for up to 20 years. In other words, they are planning on restarting their power plants. Currently, Japan does not have a limit on the operational lifespan of reactors, and the government has hinted that when it announces the cap, that extensions are a possibility. The proposed legislation requiring plants to shutter after 40 years is part of the government's campaign to improve safety following the nuclear crisis that has been going on for almost a year now. The proposed legislation is similar to and modeled on, this is the important part, it's modeled on regulations in the U.S. which grant 40-year licenses and allow for 20-year extensions. In other words, grant 60 years of operation to nuclear plants that were only planned to be created to run for 40 years. Such renewals in the United States have already been granted to 66 of our 104 nuclear reactors. Now, the one saving grace in Japan is that since the meltdowns at Fukushima, uh, Japan has ordered reactors across the country to undergo new stress tests, and they must get community approval before they can be restarted. So if they keep to that law, the nuclear plants in Japan will be dependent on approval from the people who live in the area, and there's no word as to how likely that's going to be. Let's move on to the interview, because I'm very happy today to be interviewing Donna Gilmore. She considers herself a, quote-unquote, late-blooming activist, uh, and we are lucky to have her late-blooming activities here in California. She holds positions on two different organizations as the Communications Director for San Onofre Safety and Regional Coordinator for the California Nuclear Initiative. She also has the distinction of having compiled San Onofre safety data into some crucially important charts, which we will be discussing. Donna, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Wonderful to have you here. here. So, first of all... Listening to what you were saying, it's kind of scary, but go ahead. You know, I wish the news on a given week was anything less than scary, and unfortunately, it's not. So, uh, but let's get on to some of the work that you've been doing, which deals with the scary, but also deals with the hope. So, first of all, how did you get involved in nuclear issues? Uh, well, I live in San Clemente, and uh, the local paper down here uh, reported uh, that people that work at the San Onofre nuclear plant, about two and a half, three miles from my house, 
were being harassed and fired for reporting safety problems to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And that didn't even sound believable. I thought if you run a nuclear plant, you're going to be really careful and, and reward employees for reporting safety problems. So actually that's when my late-blooming activism started. Uh, I attended Nuclear Regulatory Commission hearing and uh, heard whistleblowers, heard the NRC and San Onofre both admit to what they call, quote-unquote, safety culture problems, um, which means employees are afraid to you know, report safety problems for fear of retaliation. Right. We had um, James Chambers on the show a few weeks ago, and he's a former nuclear and operator, nuclear plant operator, uh, who was ostracized for that very reason uh, from San Onofre. Right. And I have I spoke with a, a a brave whistleblower who got up in the audience at the NRC meeting and talked about how these the circuit breakers at San Onofre are the wrong size. So if the the uh, cooling pumps that keep the radiation, you know, covered with water, if they were to fail, the circuit breaker won't trip to let them know there's a problem with the wiring. And it's just unbelievable. So I managed to track him down to get more information. And he's been trying since the year 2000 to get uh, Edison and the NRC to pay attention to this. I mean, this is like if you... You know, you know if your toaster malfunctions or something, you know your circuit breaker's going to trip, or if you plug too many things in, you know your circuit breaker's going to trip. Well, at San Onofre, um, that, they don't have that kind of protection there. And I, I'm just amazed at what I'm finding. It's just the so, so when you first found out this information, which can be devastating when one first gets exposed to it, what was your response? What action did you move into, or what difficulties did you have? Uh, well, it took me a while to um, um, get this uh, 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 electrical engineer, get him to even uh, talk to me because he was afraid of, of retaliation uh, from San Onofre. Um, so that was one obstacle. But there's actually a lot of information available on the Internet, and this particular whistleblower uh, showed me how to, how to kind of get the lingo of what the NRC uses, their terminology and where to find things. Um, and I, you know, so I was, and I'm used to doing investigative work. I was a, a systems analyst where I take all kinds of manual processes for all kinds of subjects and I figure out how to automate them and have them work. So, so I'm used to doing a lot of investigative type research. So, well, one uh, of the pieces of investigative research that you did do that I find fascinating was into San Onofre safety issues. And when one says San Onofre safety, it almost sounds like a contradiction in terms from what you discovered. Could you talk about the research you did and the charts that you compiled as a result? Uh, well, the NRC has, table, has statistics on what they call safety allegations. Uh, uh, these are complaints people file with the NRC reporting uh, safety issues that, that uh, have, are unresolved uh, at the nuclear plant. And uh, it's for all uh, for all the plants in the whole country. There's about 104 reactors in the whole country, and San Onofre has two reactors. And I took the they had it in a table format, and I took it and I threw it into an Excel spreadsheet and turned it into a chart. And the chart shows that San Onofre, you know, they're just off the charts in terms of uh, safety allegations, safety complaints against them compared to every other plant in the entire country. What's the proportion? In between what oh, the other plants and San Onofre, uh, 
it looks like about at least five times as much uh, more than all the other plants in the country. And, and Diablo Canyon isn't far behind in that statistic. And those are the two nuclear plants we have in California. And uh, I presented this data at a, a city council meeting, and, and, and the, the head of uh, San Onofre was sitting right there, and there was no denial of this information. It's, it's, it's based on facts from the NRC, you know, so there, there's, there's no way to not acknowledge it. So the NRC seems to be powerless in uh, doing anything about it. An NRC inspector at this April hearing I attended at the very end, he's an on-site inspector, he said, he said, the NRC can't shut these plants down. It's up to you. And he's pointing to all the people, all the public sitting there. It's up to you to do it. And this came from somebody who was an NRC investigator. Senior, senior on-site inspector at San Onofre. Yeah. It obviously wasn't part of his presentation. He kind of blurted it out at the very end. So. So let's move this into the other area of activism that you have because in terms of shutting down the nuclear plants in California, we do have the California Nuclear Initiative and you are the regional coordinator for this initiative. Why don't you explain, I've been speaking about it every week on the program, but why don't you briefly explain what the initiative is? Uh, this this initiative would affect it, it allows the people to vote uh, in the November election, assuming we get it on get it on the ballot, it allows the, the registered voters of California to decide if they want those new nuclear plants to continue running. Uh, and the condition, uh, it basically took existing California law that doesn't allow new nuclear plants and takes away the exclusion that was given to Diablo Canyon and San Onofre. Now there's a condition. They, they can have nuclear plants if they come up with a permanent solution for the waste, and, and there's an issue about uh, coming up with a reprocessing solution. But given that the federal government has no idea what to do with this waste, in fact, they're even considering it, storing it on site for 200 years now, uh, you know, it's, it's in effect would shut them down for you know, the foreseeable future. So in other words, if uh, the plant, what the initiative would have happen, if it, if we get the signatures to get it on the ballot in November and then it passes in November, it would force the plants to shut down until and unless they come up with a means of, of storing or neutralizing or reprocessing the nuclear fuel, so the spent fuel rods, so that they're no longer a danger. Yeah, and it's uh, from California's point, uh, uh, legal standpoint, it's basically a cost-benefit analysis where you, where you're taking the least desirable way of producing energy, uh, um, and and saying, you know, is is the is the cost to the taxpayers and ratepayers worth the risk, you know, and and so far California has decided with new plants. It's definitely not worth the risk, and, and this is just making a relatively minor change to to uh, to get get rid of the exclusion. You know, both of these plants are trying to to get extensions for another you know 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, so that does that answer your question? Very well. So, okay. have you been on the front lines asking people for their signatures? What has been your position in moving the initiative forward? 
yes, we've got uh, um, we've got posters out there. We've got an online uh, video that people can uh, learn a little, learn some tips about how to effectively gather signatures. Uh, I've personally uh, been out there gathering signatures, and I've been pre- pleasantly surprised. I mean, the people of California are very smart, and if all you you know, if, if you show them, uh, I show them one of those charts, so they see the safety record of both of the record of both uh, San Onofre and Diablo Canyon they had no idea that this plant was so mismanaged uh you show them that uh and and we don't actually even need the the energy in California we have a we have a surplus uh the plants provide less than uh each one less than 7% and right now um San Onofre one of the reactors is down so it's less than Three and a half percent. So and no rolling blackouts. What a surprise! No rolling blackouts. We had a power outage September eighth last year. San Onofre was down. Our electricity came back up, and nobody skipped a beat. You know, so uh, so you know that's uh, pretty much how that goes. But I've been so uh, encouraged because the number of people normally what what I've been told by people that have been doing signature gathering for years is usually you'll get maybe one out of ten people or one out of 13 people to sign. But my experience has been once you show them, just show them the chart, uh, and, uh, minor information, uh, they're ready to sign. I, I would say I'm getting over 90% of the, of the ones that I approach. Um, and then a certain percent of those are signing up to volunteer to help gather signatures and to kind of stay in the loop. Uh, this has actually been a a great outreach tool to get people involved in this issue. I mean, this is something that affects everything. I mean, this, if one of those plants blew, it would bankrupt California. Um, you know, we would we would lose everything here. Uh, and uh, so, with just a few facts, it, 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 the response has been great. Uh, what we need is we need more people that aren't just sitting on the sidelines saying, well, thank, well, well, I'm glad you're doing You get some of the times you'll get this. Well, I'm glad you're doing this. And I go, no, this is a grassroots effort, and we need everybody out there to do this. You have an opportunity to bypass all of the captured regulatory agencies and the ineffective elected officials who, whether they don't have the will or they don't have enough support from others to do it, um, I'm, I'm not seeing anything else that's going to work. This is like a one-time opportunity to actually shut down those two plants. And to me, it's, 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 it's worth all of my time and effort to try and make that happen. I'm not seeing anything else that could do it uh, this soon or, or this effectively. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I mean, if we were to get you the kind of help you need, what would that look like? How can our listeners support you in what it is you're doing? Well, what they can do is they can go to uh, the CaliforniaNuclearInitiative.com website. Is California spelled out on that? California is spelled out, nuclear is spelled out, and initiative is spelled out, uh, .com. Or they can also get the information on the SanOnofreSafety.org website. Uh, and uh, it's, on, it's on both places, and you can um, you can download the petition right there. We, we've uh, we've designed it so that anyone can go download their own petition, sign it, 
send it in, get gather signatures. There's instructions and everything on there. Uh, they can uh, also uh, sign up to be kept informed. They can uh, help us by volunteering to be a, a coordinator for others. And uh, if they don't want to uh, um, go out and gather signatures by themselves, we uh, send them to one of our regional coordinators or they can team them up with other people. And it's, you know, it's a great way to meet uh, new people, too. It's, it's, it's really well, there's fun. certainly a great outreach into the community that happens as a result. Um, and also I'd like to make the point that all it takes on each petition is seven signatures by registered California voters, and that sheet is done. It's not like you have to get dozens and dozens on a given no, page. No, and, and in fact, you don't even have to get all seven. I mean, if, if all you're up for is downloading it, signing it yourself, and sending it in, that's great, you know. And then we want people to, uh, we're, we want to use social media. We want people to share the, the the link and the information with their on their email and Facebook and other social media venues. Uh, um, basically, get the word out uh, uh, on this. Well, let's and, see if there's anybody on the line who would like to have a question. I'm speaking with Donna Gilmore who is the Regional Coordinator for the California Nuclear Initiative as well as the Communications Director for San Onofre Safety. So is there anybody on who would like to ask a question of Donna? This is where everybody gets really shy. <laughs> I, try, I, I try this every week. Sometimes I'm surprised when people step forward and ask, but uh, for the most part... Uh, uh, well, there, there's one thing I'd like to mention. Uh, there's a what I found is there's some good locations for gathering uh, signatures. Uh, is that uh, can I share? Those Absolutely. Yeah, if if you go to places where people already have an awareness, you know, any kind of organic venue, farmers markets, <clears throat> mothers markets, uh, even uh, um, uh, Unitarian Universal Church was a good venue. The Occupy movement, we're getting we're getting good support. So if any of your listeners can, um, you know, bring petitions and bring voter registration forms and and the, and the material that we have for them on the website, uh, take them to these things. Or uh, if you're aware of any other uh, groups, um, you know, d just share the information. But you'll you'll get a higher hit rate with that, and then we'll get more volunteers to really grow this effort. I would also like to point out that um, uh, there are other places to go. I'm a member of a storytelling group that performs live once a week. And uh, the last time I was up, I made it a pitch for the petition, and I actually sent it around the room, and I got, I got many filled out complete sheets as a result of doing it under that circumstance. So basically it's an opportunity to, be, um, to not be shy, to stand forward, to stand up for something that you believe in, and have, help others to participate as well. So, Donna, if we would want to uh, contact you directly, I know you've given us some great um, connections, and I'll be posting them on the various nuclear hot seat sites so that people can find them and the link to the charts, which I think are really important for people to take a look at. But if you have um, any other information you'd like to share, thoughts you'd like to leave us with, what might that be? Well, if if they want to uh, volunteer to be a coordinator, if they would definitely uh, go to the website and fill out the contact sheet, uh, either myself or one of the regional coordinators will be in in touch with them, um, and uh, uh, and uh, that would that would help us a lot. So, 
Um, let me see if I had. And we have until, I believe it's April 16th, uh, all yeah, of the signatures have to be handed in, correct? Right. So we've kind of backed that up to April 2nd to give us some time to deal with, you know, getting, because we have to, we physically, we have to have them physically in, at the Secretary of State's office on that due date. And they, they won't take them in advance. You have to have have all of them and everything. So, so we're trying to cut the date a little shorter right now. So, And we need people to... Um, I'm guilty of this myself, of you know, not not sending them in on a flow basis. Right now, it's not so bad because because we're in an, in an early month. But as we get closer, we um, we need people to start uh, sending them sending them in on a regular basis. And I just like to point out that we're going to need something in excess of half a million signatures, and they have to be delivered in person on that day. Well, they have to be physically there, so yes, yeah, somebody has to deliver them. That's an yeah. awful lot of bundles of of pieces yes. of paper with seven signatures on them to get up to half a million. What this is what it this is what it requires uh, that you do. That's that's just the state law of how it works. So. Well, when you're ready to get the caravan going to uh, take them up to Sacramento. Let us know, and we'll put out the call. Maybe we can get a, a whole activist caravan going because it sounds like it's either that or you're going to have to be driving a semi to get all the signatures we'll, there. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> I, 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 I usually find a way to do. In 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 my career, I, I've taken on projects people consider that other people think you can't do, and and I've managed to pull it off. This is a big one, but I'm I'm very optimistic. That, that we have what it takes to get this done. Well, Donna, with you being uh, one of the regional coordinators and being as motivated and as focused as you are, I am certain that this is going to move forward in the best possible way. And uh, let's all put pedal to the metal and, and collect those signatures because without them, we won't be on the ballot in November. So, right. Don, we need to do it now. The sooner, the sooner, the better, because it's a geometric, uh, you know, growth to, to get the get the word out. We'll do everything we can here at Nuclear Hot Seat to support you. Uh, Donna Gilmore is, again, the Communications Director for San Onofre Safety and Regional Coordinator for the California Nuclear Initiative. Donna, thank you so much for having been our guest today. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. And I invite you to stay on the podcast till the end so that you can enjoy the rest of the information. Okay, thanks. Now, this out of Canada... And uh, according to the Calgary Sun, the government of Canada is saying that there's no need to panic, probably, about Fukushima fallout that rained on Canada. Uh, Health Canada has not yet released the data that came out from uh, radioactive rain falling on Canada in the months immediately after Fukushima. Uh, They say that, quote-unquote, it's too small an amount to be worthy of public comment. However, uh, officials, oh, in addition, officials with the federal agency say raising red flags over a quote-unquote one-off sample of radiation rain is, again, another quote, fear-mongering, uh, and that even, in, even if the level in water was close to what the upper limits would be, in other words, acceptable limits of radiation, that would still mean someone would have to consume two liters a day all year in order to reach a level where they might possibly be at risk. That's what the government of Canada is saying. However, uh, according to the Montreal Gazette reporter who initially published the Calgary radiation data, the rain was tested only at the end of each month 
after a network of monitoring stations sent samples to Ottawa. This meant the radiation spikes last March were only discovered in early April after rainwater samples were sent to Ottawa for, tasting, for testing. Too late to alert the public, including those who collect rain for drinking and gardening. Also, radiation decays, and in the period of time between collection of the rain and the actual testing of the rain, it's entirely possible that any radiation that was in there decayed to a much lower level. Now, this article in the Calgary Sun quotes Gordon Edwards, who's a former advisor on nuclear matters to Ottawa and the Ontario government, as saying, quote, There are certain people who might be concerned. For instance, a pregnant woman. When a baby is growing inside, that baby should not be getting a dose of radiation at a critical moment of development because when an embryo gets radiation, one damaged cell can multiply. A fetus is far more susceptible to radiation. So what people are in the government are saying is not a concern, actually is potentially a great concern. Back to Japan, uh, we got another video in the past week from Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Associates, F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S dot com. Uh, he's a nuclear, former nuclear plant operator uh, with more than 20 years' experience in that field who left it, became a teacher, and now operates as uh, a nuclear consultant and one of the best sources of scientifically based information that's available to any of us in this movement. Uh, on this video, he pointed out a story that came from uh, NHK in Japan. It's a major Japanese radio television station. And the story reports that in Fukushima Prefecture, very high levels of cesium have been found in male cedar flowers. The tip of the cedar apparently is loaded with cesium. Data indicates that it is about a quarter of a million disintegrations per second in a kilogram of these cedar flowers. And that's pretty serious because in the spring, the flowers will bud and that radioactive cesium will go airborne again in the pollen. Uh, NHK said that there is not, that according to the government, um, quote, there is not a great health hazard as it is at only about 10 times what a person would be exposed to from normal background in Tokyo. But again, there is the concentration and the, the constant exposure to radiation that is being accumulated in people's bodies. Radiation accumulates and low doses add up over time and have the potential to push us over into disease, including most specifically the various cancers. Uh, Arnie goes on in this report to talk about the biological effects of ionizing radiation, known by the acronym BEER, B-I-E-R. No, it's not what you drink. Uh, and the BEER report shows that radiation exposure and cancer rate are linear. The more radiation you get, the more cancer you are likely to get. So uh, we do have a link to that video on the Nuclear Hot Seat uh, Facebook page, and I will be posting it on NuclearHotSeat.com if you want to see it. It's about 20 minutes long, and Arnie is always worth listening to. Now here's an odd story that um, the Louvre in France is planning to loan art to Fukushima, which has been raising fears of radiation risks to the various paintings and tapestries that are under consideration. 
visitors could uh, bring, um, the Louvre did not consult with France's Institute of Radio Protection and Nuclear Safety before making these arrangements. And there's concern that visitors could bring radiation contamination into the museum. In order to decontaminate an object made of porous material, even if it's made of stone, you have to scratch it, which for a tapestry or painting is much more complicated and delicate. So as a result, the Louvre is taking the utmost precaution to ensure the integrity of loaned art. Crates holding the pieces will be opened only inside the museum, and the objects will be placed behind thick glass. The paintings will never be exposed to the atmosphere, and their radioactivity will be checked upon arrival and upon departure. So it's wonderful that the Louvre is taking this degree of protection of its artwork in Fukushima. It's a shame that the government of Japan is not taking anything close to those kind of steps in um, protecting its people. And uh, another odd story, we all know that smoking is bad for your health, but in Japan, tobacco is not tested for radiation. It's specifically not being checked for plutonium, strontium, or uranium, despite all being found over wide areas where that tobacco is grown. According to Japan Tobacco's Investor Relations Announcement on Radiation Safety, by their own admission, they are going to sell radioactive tobacco and that radioactive cigarettes have never been tested for safety. The report goes on to admit no provisions such as the food sanitation law have been set for leaf tobacco because it's not a food item. So if you thought that cigarettes were bad for your health before, if you're in Japan, they're a whole lot worse now. This week's holistic health tip has to do with precipitation, rain and snow, because rain and snow form around particulate matter. You need to have some kind of little speck of something up in the upper atmosphere for it to form around to fall to the earth. And what that means is that if the jet stream overhead, which is carrying the Fukushima and other radiation, even nuclear testing, atmospheric testing radiation that's still up there, is carrying it around the globe, when the jet stream is thick and directly overhead, if there is a rainstorm or the rain becomes snow and it hits the cold on the way down, it can turn into what's called a rainout, meaning radiation is brought to Earth and we have a radiation spike. If you want to be conscious of this and aware, if you know that a rainstorm is coming, there's a great site to monitor the jet stream. It is IntelliCast.com, I-N-T-E-L-L-I-C-A-S-T.com. It has many different maps of what's going on weather-wise in the United States, but pay attention to the jet stream. And if you know that there's rain or snow coming and you know that and you check to see if the jet stream is overhead, and if it is, you might want to be moderate in your exposure to it. You can't do anything once you go outside, but you might want to stay out of the rain. In activist news, there was a great demonstration that took place at the Global Yokohama Conference uh, as delegates issued a demand statement for a nuclear-free world and justice for Fukushima citizens. There were 11,500 participants from over 30 countries. This took place on January 14th and 15th, a two-day global conference for a nuclear-power-free world. It featured a total of more than 100 talk sessions, 
interactive workshops, musical performances, and film screenings, plus information-lading booths from numerous non-governmental organizations. It was backed by several Japan-based and international non-government organizations, NGOs, and the Secretariat was created by Peace Boat in Japan. Uh, one of the major statements that came out was, quote, Japan's nuclear regulatory agency is being housed within the economic ministry, which is no different than criminals living under the same roof as the police. Also, for all of you who wish to take an activist stance, we are coming up on March 11th, the one-year anniversary of the start of the Fukushima tragedy. There is currently an international call for people to create events on Sunday, March 11th, to highlight what is ongoing in Japan, and the risks of nuclear energy in the United States and in your own country. If you or your group are planning any activities for March 11, please contact me through Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, and I will compile it for ongoing reports on the podcast and also to post online. And you do not need to be have a big organization or be a frontline nuclear activist to do this. You can be just a normal person out there who gets an idea and runs with it. So please put your minds to work. Let's find action to make ourselves visible on this activity. The attention of the media is short. On the one-year anniversary of Fukushima, there is going to be interest in doing roundup articles and roundup reports on the media. Let's take advantage of this and get as much information out as we possibly can. So in closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 24, 2012, day 323 since the Fukushima tragedy began, with no end in sight. You can find us and links to previous programs by going to the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook group page or NuclearHotSeat.com. We are up on iTunes, and that's where you can subscribe for free, so you never need miss a single podcast. Just click on Podcast, search Nuclear Hot Seat, and there we will be. If you've got a lead to a story or information to share, Join with our growing army of on-the-ground reporters around the world. You can send me a message on Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page, and I will get back to you. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I will speak with you again next week.